Really glad we had a dedication today. It's been a long time since we had one. And I stood here for a minute thinking, I forgot what to do. I had a senior moment. I think that's what they call it. All right, no more senior moments. Very quickly before we begin our study in the Gospel of John, I, I want to mention to you, and I failed to do this in the last service because we had so many things going on and I was trying to get uh, time-wise. We had to, you know, finish between the services. But um, for those of you who may not know, uh, one reason somebody asked me why we had the flowers out today, um, this past week, uh, on Monday night, we, we found out, uh, actually on Tuesday morning, but Monday night, our dear sister in the Lord, Virginia Viado, uh, 92 years old, or, or I should say 92 years young, she, uh, from the Philippines, uh, would walk in every, uh, every Sunday in her little walker and sit and worship the Lord with all of her heart. Well, she went home to be with the Lord on Monday night, and uh, Friday evening and Saturday morning we uh, had services for her, and she had family that came in from out of town. Uh, I think we even live-streamed to, uh, so that uh, the family in the Philippines w- were able to also uh, uh, be a part of, of the services uh, yesterday morning. So uh, please keep the Viado family in your prayers. Uh, and uh, be encouraged. Uh, she was a blessed uh, um, example of the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, for those of you that did know her, and you would know who I'm speaking of, uh, she blessed everyone because she never stopped telling anybody she could tell about Jesus. She always told somebody about Jesus. And then Jesus was her passion in her life. So... What we're going to learn today from the scriptures and what we started learning last week kind of fits in with that. Our dedication to our children, being a part of EBS, all of this plays into that too because it is bringing people to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And all of us can play that part. All of us have a role because all of us have been called as believers in Jesus Christ to tell others about him. So appropriately then all of this really ties in together. The gospel of John has has been from the very beginning a, a tremendous testament of the pre-existence, the eternal nature of the Logos, who is Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld Him as of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. And then John the Apostle begins with the testimony of John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, who gave testimony of his own calling to be the prophet, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. In essence, he was saying, prepare your hearts because the Lord has come. The Messiah is here. And God the Father who called John the Baptist revealed to him that the Lamb of God was Jesus. So that when he saw him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who taketh away the sin of the world. And John had his disciples who followed him because there were many people who were searching for a Messiah. They were searching for any Messiah, really, to overthrow the Roman government that, they, that was holding them in bondage to some extent. So there were many who were looking for a military Messiah, and others were looking for a political Messiah, but there were truly those who were looking for the scriptural, true, biblical Messiah. And John was the one who was pointing to that true, biblical Messiah. And a couple of his own disciples, Andrew, the brother of Peter, 
And as we talked about last time, another disciple who we believe is John, and I'll, I'll give even more evidence that it was John today, but John, the brother of James, and the sons of Thunder, the sons of Boanjuries, they followed Jesus. Because John wanted them to follow Jesus. That was his calling to point people to follow after Christ. And we saw how Andrew brought his brother Peter. John would eventually bring his brother James. But now something in that very same vein takes place in the next few verses. Actually the last few verses of this chapter. Which by the way means that we're going to conclude chapter 1 today. And that is what we find in verses 43 through 51. Where it says the day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and find Philip and saith unto him, follow me. Now what's different is that it isn't a disciple, it is Jesus himself that finds someone. In this case, Philip. And he says to him, follow me. But from that example, notice what happens. First of all, we learn about Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip saith unto him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom, indeed, in whom there is no guile or deceit. And Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? In other words, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. And Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, or Amen, or Amen. In other words, Amen, Amen. I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Before we get into the bulk of our text, I, I, I want to come back to something I had mentioned previously about a chronology that begins uh, here in chapter 1 that John the Apostle gives us because at the very beginning we, we actually began with an eternal understanding. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Then we hear the first, you know, 18 verses having to do then with, with identifying Jesus as the Logos, as the light, as the Son of God, the Son of Man, the, eventually the Lamb of God. But then when John the Baptist is introduced, we find ourselves in the midst of a sequence of days. The sequence of days I don't want to skip over. I find that there's some importance to that. And it begins on, on a day when John is, first of all, John the Baptist is, is presented to us. But on that day, in verse 19, again, carries a significance that we haven't touched upon. Let's call that day one. And day one finds John giving testimony to the priests and Levites from Jerusalem. And this is the record of John, it says, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? The questions, of course, were focused in, Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you one of the prophets? 
And of course, his answer was no. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, he said. That was on day one of this sequence of days. On day two, John gave public testimony to the very presence of the anointed one, Messiah, Jesus, to all within the sound of his voice, which may have included as well the priests and the Levites, the Sanhedrin, and his own disciples. For we read in verse 29, the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Included in that same day was John's witness given to him by the Father at Jesus' baptism and the declaration of Jesus as the Son of God. Now, John the Apostle doesn't mention the baptism itself, but actually what was said at the baptism that gave the wisdom and understanding to John that this was indeed the Mashiach, the Messiah, and that is, of course, what is said by God the Father on that day of Jesus' baptism when he said, This is my beloved Son, of whom I am well pleased. So, in the end of that sequence of that day, the, the, the second day, John said, And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So by the very thing that was said by God the Father, the dove that came and alighted upon Jesus, which was of course the symbol of the Holy Spirit, then everything was falling into place that this was indeed the Messiah. He was fulfilling the scriptural requirements of the, uh, of, of the law and all, that this indeed would be the one who was the anointed one. On the third day though, We saw the decision made by two of John's disciples, Andrew and John, to leave him in order to become followers of Jesus. So in verse 35, it says again, the next day, now the third day, after John stood and two of his disciples. This brings us then, of course, to the fourth day in the sequence of days given to us by John. Obviously, the recollection of a participant of the events being described, which gives us more evidence that the disciple who followed Jesus along with Andrew was John. And as we said last time, John never mentions himself, but he saw these things as an eyewitness, so he gives us the sequence of days so that we might know that indeed this was was John. But... One more day needs to be considered. And that is John chapter 2 verse 1, because there it says, And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, while John mentions this as the third day, it would have been then the seventh day in the sequence, which is interesting because weddings, according to Jewish tradition, weddings were traditionally held on Wednesdays making the third day mentioned in verse 35, the Sabbath day. And that is kind of significant here, because what we discovered was that it was anything but a day of rest for either John the baptizer and Jesus, for John continued preaching and Jesus was gathering his disciples. But it does give us some kind of an indication that later on, Jesus would be challenged often about the Sabbath and what could be done and what couldn't be done on the Sabbath. Prompting Jesus then to teach them the reality of the Sabbath by saying, in effect by asking, is the Sabbath for man or is man for the Sabbath? The answer of course was, the Sabbath is for man. But all the things that Jesus would eventually do on the Sabbath was always to show who he was. And so, with that in mind, we press on into our our text today. We go back now to this fourth day of the sequence, the day following Jesus, uh, the day following, in other words, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now this is a little different than what we saw where Andrew went and found Peter. And told him about Jesus. We're told that Philip was uh, of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. We'll talk about it in a moment. Wherefore he is able... Oh, I'm really getting ahead of myself now. 
So when we consider the experience of Philip, let's, let's go back and look at Philip here, because this is the person that Jesus now says, follow me too. So when we consider this experience of Philip, we need to reflect on some significant points. First of all, Jesus himself went forth and sought Philip. Jesus sought him and found him. And Philip, as far as we can tell at this point, was not seeking Jesus. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Possibly in our own lives. We were living in the world. We weren't really seeking after Jesus. Yet what we discovered was that Jesus was seeking after us. This is the reason why the scriptures seem to always correct us to let us know we didn't love Jesus first. He first loved us. We didn't seek Jesus first. He first sought us. We didn't find Jesus first. He first found us. I think we can be thankful for that. The, initi- the initiative here in the text comes to us and says it was entirely, the initiative was entirely from Jesus. Jesus made the move to find and to save Philip and to enlist him in his mission. And it has to be noted that Jesus traveled a long distance to find Philip. I'm not saying that we're talking about the distance between Jerusalem and the Galilee. That's a long distance, especially when you walk in it. No, because we go back to the fact that uh, John the Baptist was baptizing at the Jordan, still a good distance from the Galilee, where we will find ourselves next, in the area of the Galilee, Galilee in Cana, as we'll see next time. But it was a long distance. And Galilee was that area that a lot of the ministry of Jesus uh, took place. But take note that if Jesus is making his way to the Galilee here, then it almost appears that the stated purpose for Jesus going to the Galilee was to find Philip. And I only mention that because I, I want you to think about your own conversion. I want you to think about the, the, the very day that you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The very day in which Jesus found you. The question that we can ask is how far did Jesus go to reach your soul? How far did Jesus go to find you? Because some of us have a testimony that says he went a long way to find us. We weren't, we weren't, uh, we weren't just standing around churches all the time so he could find us easily. Many of us were deeply into the world when he found us. And we were so far away. That's our testimony. We were so far away from God, yet He found us still. And He touched us still. And He changed us still. Aren't you glad that our Lord and Savior will go to any length to find us? Aren't you glad that our Lord and Savior will go to any length and to any sin, no matter how terrible it might be, no matter how awful it might be, to prick the mind and the heart of any person? Are you, aren't you glad that our Lord and Savior will go to any length and to any place, no matter how hidden, no matter how shameful, to shine His light, to reveal our sin? Aren't you glad that our Lord and Savior will go to any length and to any condition, no matter how hopeless or helpless, with a message of hope and help in a time of need? Aren't you glad that our Lord and Savior will go to any length and to any person, no matter how shamed or guilty, to bring the message of repentance and the word of salvation to save them to the uttermost? Because if you're glad, you're glad because He did it first for you. You're here today because Jesus loved you that much. To find you where He did. And to rescue you from yourself, to rescue you from sin and from death. 
and to give you what you don't deserve. And I include myself with you. We don't deserve eternal life, but He gave it to us. And we should be thankful and grateful that He saved us to the uttermost. My question to you is, how far is uttermost? How far can uttermost be? We're told in Hebrews 7 verse 25, Wherefore He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. He is able also to save them to the uttermost. How far is the uttermost? How deep is the uttermost? Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, before He ascends into heaven, He tells, he tells the, uh, the group that is going to receive uh, the power uh, of the Holy Spirit to, to be His witnesses. This is what He says to them, But you shall receive power after that, that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto Me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. How far can you go? For that to be defined as the uttermost. And yet it says He saves us to the uttermost. And just as Jesus went a great distance to bring Philip to Him, every believer in Jesus Christ should be willing to go any distance to reach any people, no matter how far or how deeply depraved or how untouchable a person may be. And again, we can look at this verse of scripture because it is there that we also receive that calling to be witnesses of him in our cities as in Jerusalem in our surrounding regions as in all of Judea and in other places outside of this area in our Samarias and even unto the uttermost part of the world how far Did Jesus go to find you? How far will we go to find others? Think that, think about Bethsaida, the city of Philip. It's interesting to me that Philip was from that city of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, because it makes him a fisherman. The city is appropriately called the house of the fisherman. That's Bethsaida. It is quite possible that Andrew and Peter, who are actually from Bethsaida as well, Andrew might have laid the groundwork and prepared the soil of Philip's heart. And it certainly was a good thing that these fishermen came to follow the Lord, since the city of Bethsaida was also known for its wickedness, as well as being distinguished for rejecting Jesus and His mighty works. Later on, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus points this out to us uh, here in verses 20 and 21. Matthew records his, he says, Then began he, Jesus, to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Which means they rejected the work that Jesus Christ did there. They didn't repent of their sins. They didn't, they didn't heed the words of the Lord, or did they uh, accept the mighty works. But notice what Jesus says. He says in, in Matthew eleven twenty one, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So Bethsaida was not a great place to live. For as a whole, they rejected the Lord Jesus. But not Andrew, and not Peter, and not Philip. So now let's consider Philip in this particular sense. Jesus comes to Philip and he says to him, follow me. We know that he follows Jesus. But what was Philip's first concern after being found by Jesus? What was his first concern? Look at verse 45. Philip findeth Nathanael. Philip findeth Nathanael. Philip got up and 
brought someone to Jesus. Philip findeth Nathanael, saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What this indicates as well to us, as I said earlier, it didn't appear that, that Philip was, was seeking Jesus per se, but one thing we do know about Philip was that he knew the word of God, and he was looking for Messiah. <coughs> so he had the heart to look for Messiah. I don't believe that he was looking for a military Messiah, or that he was looking for a political Messiah, but that he was truly looking for the biblical Messiah. For it was Philip who said, We have found him, the one of whom the scriptures, Moses, the prophets, have pointed us. But there's something else that needs to be taken note of, and that is that he said, and this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he said, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth. Why does he mention Nazareth? And the son of Joseph, as if to identify him to someone that would have known the family. In Nazareth. What that does is bring a response from Nathaniel who says in verse 46, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. You remember what that, what that means, what Jesus said to Andrew and, Andrew and John. He said, Come and see. It was the invitation. He invites Nathanael to come and see Jesus. So Philip's first concern then was to reach his friend Nathanael. And Philip found Nathanael, which tells us something. It tells us that he was looking for him. How many of you lose your keys every day? Those of you who are laughing a little bit probably do. Maybe not every day, right? But listen, when we lose something, we look for it to find it, don't we? And isn't it interesting that you always find what you're looking for in the last place you look? Of course! My mother... Bless her heart. She always wore her glasses around her neck. Yeah, she had those little things, you know, that she could hang on around her neck. Whenever she needed them, she was... Well, one day she was frantically, frantically going around the house looking for her glasses. I said, Mom, they're around your neck. You're looking in the wrong place. One day I went to the refrigerator... I did that a lot. But I always found what I was looking for. Anyway, one day I went to the refrigerator, opened the refrigerator, and there were my mom's glasses. And then my mom comes around the corner, where are my glasses? I said, where are you in the refrigerator? Where have you left them? We search for what we want to find until we find it. It may sound simple, but it's profound here. Philip searched and reached out to his friend Nathaniel, and he found him. Why? Because Jesus had challenged Philip to follow him. What does it mean to follow him? It means to become just like him. And Philip did. Jesus came to Philip and he said, follow me. And Philip followed him. And then Philip said, I'm going to be like this one that I'm following. And he goes and he finds Nathanael and he tells him, come and see. He became a personal soul winner just like his Lord. And that is what we are to do and that is what we are to be. How did the word ever come to us? 
Think of the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. The words to his son in the faith. And he says to him, The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So the things that you have heard of me, in other words, the example I have given to you, Timothy, you take and you give to others so that they go forth and they teach others also. And that continued on until today where we are sitting here because someone reached out to us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can any of you remember the very person who led you to Jesus Christ? I do. That was over 43 years ago. I can remember the place, the time, the very person that led me to Jesus Christ and brought me to Christ. I'll never forget it. And I thank God every day for that person. This is what puts the conviction of our hearts and our lives for Jesus Christ at the forefront of our testimony, the forefront of our witness, the forefront of what we do to live out our lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. So consider the, the conviction of Philip, Philip's conviction to the extent that he goes to Nathaniel and he says, this Jesus is the one that was prophesied. He is the one that fulfills the prophecies. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth. There's that word again. Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I mean, Philip was extremely joyful. How could he not be to tell him we have found him? There was jubilation. There was excitement. There was rejoicing. There was beating in the very heart of Philip to tell Nathaniel that he had found the Messiah. And he began describing Jesus as the one who fulfilled all the scriptural requirements for the Messiah. The one who had been preached by Moses and the law and the prophets. Now as we shall see, Nathaniel was evidently a man who knew the Hebrew Scriptures. Why would Philip, Philip tell him these things if he didn't? So now we get a better picture of these two men, Philip and Nathaniel, As men who were looking more for a biblical Messiah than they were for just some military or political Messiah to come and overthrow Rome for them. They had it in their heart to know who the true Messiah was. That tells us they believed the Word of God. It may be that Philip and Nathaniel had often poured over the Scriptures knowing that Messiah was to be a, a shoot of David's royal line, that he was to be born in Bethlehem, that he was to be born of a virgin, that he was to be a sojourner in Egypt for at least a time, and that, that he was to be identified with the northern part of the promised land. Which will, in a moment, bring us to Nazareth. These men knew the scriptures. They knew the promises. They knew Micah chapter 5 because that's where Jesus would be born. Bethlehem. They knew Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9. In particular, 9 verses 1 and 2 that deals with the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why? Those are the northern parts of the, of the, of the, uh, of the kingdom of Israel. It would be there... But the prophet would say, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. The light came, yes, first to Bethlehem. But we know the story. Joseph takes his, his bride, Mary, both of them, by the way, connected to the line of David. So because of that, they had to go all the way down to Bethlehem to register for the census, that being God's hand to bring them to the place where He had prophesied that the Messiah would be born. 
And then it would be from there a few years later, a couple of years later, that they would have to escape out to Egypt. Again, a a fulfilling of prophecy. And eventually they would have to find themselves back in the hometown of Joseph where he had his carpenter shop, which by the way, carpentry wasn't just wood work, it was also stone masonry. By the way, mangers were made out of stone, not wood. Every one of those details was fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what brings the shock to Nathaniel in verse 46 to hear his friend describe the newfound Messiah as Jesus of Nazareth. He says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Yes, there is some prejudice here. But we are told in John 21 verse 2 that Nathanael was from Cana of Galilee. John 21 verse 2, it tells us Nathanael was from Cana of Galilee. By the way, Nathanael, who is mentioned in the Gospel of John as Nathanael, is mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels, the other Gospels, as Bartholomew. We'll talk about that later. You won't see Bartholomew and Nathaniel mentioned because they're both one and the same. But the other Gospels use the name Bartholomew, but we will talk about that later. Cana was less than five miles from Nazareth. So he was aware of that town's reputation. But it didn't strike him that Nazareth was part of the northern kingdoms or regions as it were of Zebulun and Naphtali nonetheless to those in Nazareth Jesus would have had a reputation for goodness there wasn't a lot of good in Nazareth except for this little house and shop where Joseph lived with Mary and his son Jesus well his stepson the people might not have known there in Nazareth about his virgin birth but they knew of his honesty they knew of his integrity they knew of his sympathy they knew of his kindness they knew of his knowledge and wisdom of his helpfulness and his generosity And based upon the scriptures, they also knew something else. He never sinned. He never said or did anything that would reflect anything other than a godly humanity. But the Messiah from Nazareth? Impossible! Except for God. Who worked it all out. That brings us to another question that we can ask. Can the Logos of God, the Logos being the Word of God, the very person of Jesus Christ, but can the Logos become man? To hear it described as we did in the first couple of verses of chapter 1, we would wonder, my goodness, can the Logo actually be man? But that's what we're told in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Because with God, nothing is impossible. Everything is possible with God. Everything is possible with Jesus Christ. They work in concert together. They work together always. The three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as I said, Nathaniel had responded to Philip with prejudice, but instead of arguing with him, Philip just simply invited Nathaniel to meet the Lord Jesus for himself. He said, come and see. And as I said last week, that phrase, come and see, literally means, come and you shall see. Come and you will see. He invites him. 
No great worries here. Why do we worry about telling people about Jesus? Do you know that the number one reason that people are afraid to tell people about Jesus is because they're afraid of rejection. Don't be afraid of rejection. Are they rejecting you or are they rejecting Jesus? Let the Lord take care of that. You just be obedient and tell people about Jesus. That's what we're called to do. It's not about putting notches on your belt. I brought 25 people to the Lord last week. One at a time. You know? It's not about notches on your belt. It's about obedience. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the world. You shall give testimony to me as John gave testimony and Andrew and John came and Andrew brought Peter and Jesus brought Philip who brought Nathaniel and it just goes on and on and on until Jesus comes again. So now Philip is bringing Nathanael to Jesus and what happens? In verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and he saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile or deceit. And that strikes Nathanael because Nathanael says, Wait a minute, how do you know me? Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Literally, you know what he literally it says, Where do you know me from? How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. That's an interesting thing. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. My fingers are just getting carried away. What we learn here in, these, in, in, in this text is that, that, that Jesus knew Nathaniel. Because Jesus is the Logos. He's the eternal God. God the Son. But pre-existent to all of creation. Who knows the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning. He knows each and every one of us here. Jesus knew Nathaniel already. He knew his beliefs. He knew his character, not to mention his thoughts. And as pertaining to his beliefs... Jesus called him an Israelite indeed. What did that mean? Well, he, he was the epitome, actually, of an Israelite. Everything that an Israelite should be. Because an Israelite was one who should have been trusting always in their God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Israel. An Israelite is one who should trust in God, the one true and living God. Again, it, it reminds us that he believed in the promises of God to have known the word. He tried to live up to the standard that God had set for Israel and he was looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the Messiah. Though not thinking that Messiah would be one that was connected to Nazareth because of its ungodly reputation. The Lord knows what we set our hearts upon, doesn't he? The Lord knows what we set our hearts upon. Let's not, let's not be fooled right now. Don't think that you can outfool God. Don't think that you can outthink God in any way. That you can think of something that God doesn't know about. He already knows you. He knew you before you were born. He had you in mind even before your parents had you in mind. He knows the good and the bad. He knows the godly and the evil intents of the human heart. In fact, John would write in his first letter to the church these particular words. He would say, My little children, let us not love in word, nor, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Don't just tell somebody you love them. Show them that you love them. I, I hate to hear the stories of people say, Well, you know, this person said he loves me, but then he mistreats me, and then he does this and he does that to me. Wait a minute. If you can't just love in word or in, in tongue, by, by tongue, but you have to love in deed and in truth. Y'all understand this, uh, this? Okay. 
And hereby we know that we are of the truth. We are of the truth because Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. He knows your heart better than you know yourself. So he knows the thoughts and the intents of our heart. So why try to fool God? You might fool me or someone else, but you can't fool Him. And I'm not the one to judge you, and no one else is going to judge you, but God will judge you. If you let Him. (laughs) Or should I say, if you make Him. Don't be foolish. But Jesus knew Nathanael's character, that he wasn't a man that was deceitful. In other words, he didn't deceive people, he didn't bait people, he didn't mislead people. He didn't hide what he thought to be deceptive. He said what he thought and he acted what he felt. He was straightforward, he was open, and he was honest. And he was one who knew the Word of God, didn't he? And yet he had to come to Jesus. There are a lot of Jewish people, you know, you go to Israel, we, we've talked to, to many, we sat in the shop of one, uh, of a couple of brothers that uh, are, are Orthodox Jews, and, and they like to have uh, open dialogue with Christians, and we, we've done this a few times in their, in their shop there in Jerusalem. They know the Word, sometimes they even know the New Testament better than some Christians do. But they don't know Jesus. They don't accept Jesus as their Messiah. But they know the word. And one day I hope and pray that they will see their Messiah, who is Jesus. A lot of people that may know the word today, but they don't believe, they haven't trusted in God yet. They brought to mind the person of, of, of Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher of the late 19th century. Spurgeon was brought up in a Christian home. His father was a very devout man. His grandfather was a, was a preacher, pastor. And for many of his younger years, Charles Spurgeon actually lived with his grandfather. He was brought up by his grandfather. So he was brought up around the Word of God. He was brought up around a, a large library of, of commentary and, and, and books written about the Scriptures. And he read them all. And he had devotions, and he, and, he, and, and he prayed, and he and he did all of these things. Yet Spurgeon would be the first one to tell you, in my life I knew these things, but I didn't know him. And he writes in his own biography, his testimony of one day just being so turned in his own heart, just struggling with his understanding of, of who God is and who Jesus is. He, he went out on a January day to, uh, to go to a church, and, and uh, but yet he was caught in a, a terrible snowstorm and, and uh, got uh, disoriented and ended up on a street where there was a small little church. It wasn't the church he was going to. He was going to go to some big, huge church, but couldn't get there. So he went to this small little church. Half the people, maybe even more than half the people weren't there because of the snowstorm, but there was a few scattered people there and no pastor. The pastor was caught up in the snowstorm as well. And so here he goes into this church and, and, and one of the, the men of the church finally goes up to the pulpit. What seemed to be a very unlearned man, as, as Spurgeon describes him, one who didn't have great uh, 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 linguistic faculties or whatever, you know, just, just a very simple person. But one who knew the Word of God. Reminds us of the disciples who were the fishermen who were considered the un, unlearned, the uneducated, the ignorant. But they knew the Word of God, didn't they? And this man went up to the pulpit and with one verse of Scripture, Look to me, all ye lands, and be saved. 
And he pointed to Charles Spurgeon sitting by himself trying to not be seen, but he was seen. And he said, young man, in essence, what he told him is this is for you. Look unto me, God says. And it struck his heart that on that day he came to know the salvation of Jesus Christ. Learned the Word of God, grew up with the Word of God, had it in his life, but needed Jesus. He would have been one that this scripture would have fit. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in his spirit there is no guile. Spurgeon lived his life to live it right before God because he was afraid of God. But then he came to realize he didn't have to be afraid of God. He had to fear God, but not be afraid of Him because God saved him and gave him eternal life. And so the same with Nathaniel. Jesus went further with Nathaniel. He showed Nathaniel that even before Philip had found him, he had found him. He knew where Nathaniel had been earlier in the day. Listen to this. Sitting under a fig tree. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it means, and then I'll tell you why I believe this. He was sitting under a fig tree, meditating on the Word of God, meditating on the Scriptures in particular. He was meditating about Jacob and his vision of the latter in Genesis chapter 28. So how do you know that? Well, first of all, it was the night of Jacob's conversion. But I know this because rabbis of the time had written and told their students that they were to go and find a place, in particular a fig tree, to sit under and meditate upon the scriptures, simply. And the students of rabbis always did what their rabbis told them to do. So I can tell you this, they didn't go out to look for an elm tree. They didn't go out to look for any other kind of tree. They said, he said, fig tree, we got to go to the fig tree. There could be other significance to it, but that's what they did. They just went to a fig tree because the rabbi said, go to a fig tree, sit under it and meditate upon the word of God. So that's the first thing that we can understand. He was probably sitting under a fig tree, meditating on the word of God. Why the statement of looking at Genesis 28? Well, think about this. When you look at verses 49 through 51, the last part of this chapter, I know we're going a little long today, a lot of stuff happening today, but we're almost done. Uh, so don't worry. Nathaniel answered and he said unto him, this is after he said, I saw you under a fig tree. He says, Rabbi, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. He just gave two names to Jesus that pertain only to the Messiah. The Son of God, the King of Israel. So Jesus Answered and he said to him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, you believe, believest thou? Jesus said, You ain't seen nothing yet. Or, as the King James says, Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, true true amen amen I say unto you hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man so if he was sitting under a fig tree Jesus also knew what he was studying what he was meditating upon and uses that to point to himself and you'll see that in just a moment because Matthew, uh, Nathaniel, I should say, confessed with his mouth that day that the Lord Jesus was not only the rabbi, the prophet, 
but he was the son of God. He was the king of Israel. He was indeed the Messiah. But in effect, what he was confessing was that Jesus was now his Lord. And the scripture says in Romans 10 verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And then John, the apostle, would tell us in his first letter to the church, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God. God dwelleth in him, and he in God. So now we know the new condition of Nathaniel. But Jesus promised Nathaniel a greater basis for belief. <coughs> Again, Soon to come were the miracles of Jesus. So more than likely referring to the miracles that were, follow, that were to follow in Jesus' ministry. And just as Jacob had seen the angels going up and down the ladder, Nathaniel would also see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. You see now the link to that vision that was given to Jacob. He saw a ladder. Jesus is saying, the ladder is me. I'm the link between God in heaven and this earth. I'm the only link. I'm the only way. We oftentimes say, well, the way is the, the road the, to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John fourteen six. But this was the only way to God. And Jacob saw it. But so did Nathaniel. And Jesus said, that latter that you're studying about here under this fig tree, that is me. Just as Jacob saw angels from heaven communicating with earth, Nathaniel and others would see Jesus as the divine communication from heaven to earth. The Son of Man replacing the latter would now be God's link with earth. Kind of ties us together very quickly here with Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. We've just been studying this on, on Wednesday nights. Uh, but I just bring this up to, to bring the connection between the Ancient of Days, which is the Father, and Jesus, who is the Son of Man. Because it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Also, Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 64 says, uh, nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So the Son of Man and the Son of God, of course, being the same one, uh, certainly different uh, offices for the same person. But lastly, Jesus was also the new Bethel. What is Bethel? Well, that was the place where Jacob saw the vision. And he named that place Bethel, the house of God. And Jesus is also now our new Bethel. Why? Because that's God's dwelling place. Which brings us back to John 1.14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So as the Son of Man, Jesus left heaven to come to the earth. He used the term, by the way, Son of Man. Jesus himself used the term uh, more than 80 times for it speaks of his humanity and suffering and his work as the ideal man, the second Adam, as it were. And so Jesus sought to lift Nathaniel's thoughts to a higher ground, to a higher sphere, as, as he continues to do to us today and for us today. Bring us to a greater understanding of who He is. And so let me close with these words. Heaven opened to earth when Christ came. Heaven opened on earth because Christ came. And those who receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will now have that access to heaven because Jesus is the only way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No man cometh unto the Father except by me.
Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your truth, for your life, for your light. We give you thanks, Father, that in your word there is no deceit, there is no guile. We can trust it completely and fully. I pray for the hearts who need you today, Lord, that they have been stirred to come to you to make clear and to make sure that their standing will be with you for here until eternity. And so, Father, may you do your work now in us. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Shall we stand?